On today's episode, Liz and I talk with Chad Ford about constructive conflict and an insightful topic he refers to as dangerous love, which is the title of his book. Chad shares some unique insights from turning first to how real love can transform our marriage, parenting, and relationships at work. And you'll love his take on different conflict styles. Chad's life feels like Forrest Gump in some ways. He currently works as the director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at BYU-Hawaii. Before that, he worked as an NBA draft analyst for ESPN and as a conflict mediator. He consults with the Arbinger Institute and travels the world helping nations and organizations resolve conflict in peaceful ways, including governments, NGOs, and corporations like Nike and the U.S. Olympic team. Chad is the father of eight children and lives in Hawaii. You can find out more about Chad Ford and his book, Dangerous Love, by visiting his website, DangerousLoveBook.com. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Stronger Marriage Connection. I'm Dr. Liz Hale, clinical psychologist, along with my friend, the professor, Dr. Dave Schramm. We are dedicating our life's work to bringing you the best we have in valid marital research, along with a few tips and tools to help you create the marriage of your dreams. Our topic today is on constructive conflict. Yes, there is such a thing. Think just for a moment. Who are you in conflict with right now? Your, your partner, maybe a friend, a child, a neighbor, a political party even? According to our guest, the esteemed Chad Ford, we can handle conflict at home, at work, or in the world in one of two ways, constructively or deconstructively. For many years, Chad Ford has lived a triple life or quadruple life, or I don't know what the next one would be, as a college professor, a conflict mediator, and an MBA draft analyst for ESPN. You will discover more about his rich background that includes merging sports with peace-building work in the, in the pages of his exceptional book, Dangerous Love. I really couldn't put this book down. He and his wife, Amanda, have eight children, and they reside in Laie, Hawaii. Welcome to Stronger Marriage Connection, Chad. Aloha. Thanks for having me on. Aloha. Yeah, welcome, Chad. I'm excited to have you. Let's start right off, please, with the title of your book, Dangerous Love. Oh, that really captured my attention. You've come to believe that dangerous love really is the only way we can transform destructive conflict into constructive conflict. What is dangerous love versus easy love, for instance? Well, th first, thanks for having me on the uh, on your podcast. And, you know, it was really interesting. It was a source of some contention with our publisher about titling this book Dangerous Love and concerns that this was going to just be about domestic violence or that it was going to be a romance novel, um, which ironically, uh, several years later after the book came out, it, it absolutely absolutely happened. A romance novel called Dangerous Love came out. Oh, but to, oh my goodness. <laughs> but to me. The reason that that I named this was actually inspired by another book by Martin Luther King called Strength to Love. And the premise of that book that was really transformative for me was this idea that um, it's hard to love people when we're in conflict. It's actually quite scary. And the fact that we have so much fear involved in thinking about conflict or engaging in conflict with other people often 
causes us to turn off the very thing that actually helps us get back on track and, and turn destructive conflict into constructive conflict, which is love. And when I say love, I'm not talking about romantic love here or even the love that means like, right? Uh, I can love someone and not necessarily like them, but the sort of love that says that your needs, wants, and desires matter just as much to me as my own do. And therefore, I'm going to work on trying to find a collaborative way of both meeting my needs as well as your needs. And I'm not going to really stop until both of those needs are met. And and I really think that that's that's the key to really getting to really transformative conflict. And and I, I think it's especially important to talk about in marriage, uh, where you have the most intimate relationships, and it really does require a high level of collaboration to have a really successful marriage. Hmm. Yeah, I love that, Chad. You, you say. That dangerous love requires more than, than courage. It demands uh, fearlessness, right? So in choosing love over fear, we choose we over me, as, as we like to say here in Stronger Marriage Connection. Is there a, a, kind of, you know, a secret formula, I guess, for helping us choose love over fear, especially in our, our close personal relationships? Well, the, the alternative is more conflict and destructive conflict. So basically the be best way that I am able to describe this to clients that come in all the time is we can keep doing it your way. And by the time they're seeing me, things are typically bad, right? Like it, nobody comes and sees me, sees me and talks about how awesome uh, their marriage is, right? So like we can keep doing it this way, which either might be avoidance or we're in intense competition with each other. We're both trying to win the marriage um, or one person is giving everything thing to the other person and feeling like they're just being uh, stampeded over uh, time and time again. I mean, you can keep doing that and hoping that something will change, but it's it's not going to change. And, and so really the fearlessness part of this is I'm going to have the courage to do something different, the courage to do something that actually feels vulnerable, courage to do something that actually may feel like I'm going to get slapped in the face or that the person is, is going to try to take advantage of me. Um, but I I'm doing it because the only way that we're actually going to get to a space where we can really, really get to that collaboration is when we're both vulnerable and we're both open up and we're both offering things to the other side without necessarily any guarantee that the other side is going to deliver back uh, in equal amounts. Mm. Yeah, that, that vulnerable, it feels like authenticity, right? Just being completely um, honest, open, humble open with that other person. These, these principles, they really resonate from uh, a lot of it, at least from I'm familiar with is the Arbinger Institute. We talked beforehand about some of the classes that I took, even as an under, undergrad learner about the Arbinger Institute. And we'll put a lot of these in the show notes, show notes because Liz and I are big fans and have read a lot of those um, books. How did you and the Arbinger Institute become uh, connected in this dynamic way? Yeah, I was actually working on a project in the Middle East, uh, and it was actually a very intense uh, project that I was working um, with uh, with some people that were actually uh, quite threatening. And as I was leaving to go there, this was my very first year teaching at BYU-Hawaii, uh, one of my students, she was an older student, uh, who had children in, in a program called Anasazi um, that is, works, works with the Arbinger Institute. Um, 
she put a pre-publication copy of The Anatomy of Peace, which is uh, Arbinger's second book, uh, on my desk and said, I really think you need to read this before you go. And and I smiled and said, I got a lot going on and, you know, thank you. But I, I really didn't have any plan on reading it. But she actually broke down in tears in my office and said, I, I think you're going to get killed if you don't read this. And so I, I promised her I'd read it. I didn't. It, from Hawaii to Jerusalem, you know, that's like a 30 plus hour uh, journey. I didn't read it the entire time, but after the engagement was over, something really profound had happened to me um, it, during the negotiation where something had changed at the last second. And I didn't really understand why. It went from terrible to amazing. And so a more humble Chad laying on his hotel uh, bed at uh, back at the hotel afterwards, grabbed the book out of my satchel, uh, opened it up, and about halfway through the book, it just occurred to me, Here's the thing, and, and I think this is a key to dangerous love as well. I spent this entire negotiation with this other person thinking that they were the one that needed to change. They're the bad guys. I'm the good guy. I'm here to pre bring peace. You're here to bring conflict. If you'll just be convinced by my words, you'll understand that you need to change. And when you change, the conflict will go away. And it wasn't until I about halfway through that book that it occurred to me the person in the room that needed to change was me. And until I changed, nothing else about the conflict was actually going to change. And this this actually surprised me. I mean, I, I was a, honestly a little surprised because I typically don't think about myself as a mediator, as someone who needs to change, right? The people that I'm trying to help are the ones that need to change. But it, it really did change my life. And, and I, when I returned back to Hawaii, I called the Arbinger Institute and, and Jim Farrell, who was the author of the book, actually picked up. And I told him about my experience and uh, We've been in partnership really ever since, mostly on my end, working on sort of socio-political conflict and and other sorts of conflict initiatives uh, that I've done with Arbinger over the last you know fifteen or so years. Wow, that's impressive! What a transformation, yeah. man! And that's what's really crucial is transforming that conflict. I, I can see that. Uh, well, how do we see conflict and the person we are in conflict with differently then? What are the messages, Chad, we need to tell ourselves when the conflict is, let's say, with my partner or a child, someone in my family, someone that's really close in particular? Well, I, I think it actually starts with that insight that if I want to change, if I want something to change, it starts with me. And I know this isn't always popular advice, uh, right? Like when people come to me, they're very convinced that the person that they're in their relationship with is the <laughs> one that needs to change. It's it's like clockwork. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever had a mediation that started with, uh, hey, I've got a big problem in my marriage and it's me, uh, right? It always starts with, I have a big problem in my marriage and, and it's them. And if I'm part of the problem, it's only because of them that I'm part of the problem, right? It's because they're they're so difficult or they're so hard um, that maybe I'm also engaged in some bad behavior. And, and, you know, for me, look, all of that might be true. Um, the other person may be a problem uh, in the marriage. They may not be um, what a, a marriage partner should be. And in fact, there might actually be situations, of course, of, of abuse or whatever that, um they're a big enough problem that really the right thing to do is leave uh, and get out of that situation. But most of the people that come into my office are blind to the fact that that conflict isn't happening to them, that they're actually engaged in a conflict process with someone. 
Um, and that because of fear, they have gotten into self-preservation mode instead of us preservation mode. Um, and because of that, they're now valuing their own feelings, their own fears, their own concerns more than the relationship. And I think this is a really key part. It's not about putting someone else's desires, dreams uh, above my own. It's not about just giving in and saying to the other person, well, I guess if you really want that so badly, then it doesn't matter what I want. That, that's an unsustainable. Um, but it's actually about saying, I'm going to take um, at face value what they say they need is just as important to them as what I say that I need. And I'm going to try to understand that and try to figure out how giving them that might actually open them up to being able to see me as well. So it's drawing a circle around us. Is that yeah, what you said? Us? Yeah, us preservation instead yeah. of self-preservation, which is the instinct, right? Yeah, it sure is. You know, amidst conflict, it seems like we we tend to disconnect from someone at the very moment that, excuse me, they need us to connect with them and we need to be connected to them. I loved your story of your then 15-year-old daughter that's in the book. Do you mind sharing how that experience went from fear to anger to really a deep and sweet connection? So we have a rule in our family that... Um, that kids can't date until they're 16. Um, and it's, it's really clear. And this is one of my, that this is a daughter. So there's been my third oldest daughter, but she's seen her sisters go through this and her brother go through this as well. Uh, but I, I hear a rumor on campus one day that my daughter is actually dating someone. Um, she's hiding it from us. And my first reaction is I'm upset. I'm actually angry about it, right? Like, how dare she? Why is she hiding this? She knows the rule, what have you. You know, luckily, I have a, an amazing wife who actually is also a family therapist um, who sometimes is more level-headed about this stuff than I, than I can be. Um, who, who brought up a really interesting point to me. She said, well, of course she's not telling you. You talk all the time about um, how bad it is to date before you're 16. You have this Samoan war club that hangs in your house that you always joke, hey, if you're going to bring a boy, boy over, I want him to see the Samoan war club. She's scared to death of you, and she's scared to death of like what will happen um, with any boy um, right now. So, of course, she's sneaking around. And look, that that hurt to hear that, but it, it also made made sense. My, my wife was able to do something I wasn't. She was able to get into the, the worldview and the perspective of my daughter and try to think about instead of just this just being bad behavior, what would motivate a 15 year old to sneak behind her dad's back and, um, you know, start dating somebody she liked. And uh, after a while, I, I, I kind of saw it. And, and I and, and two things I think that were contradictory at the time. I saw her for the first time and why she was acting the way she did. And I hadn't changed my mind as a parent that 16 was the right age um, for her to be dating. Right. And so the conversation really started with me telling my daughter, hey, I'm going to pick you up from school school. I got the text back. Why? What's going on? That's unusual. Dad's taking off work to pick you up from school. I think think part of her knew. But I remember we're in a Jeep and we're driving home uh, and I decide and she's she's tense. I can tell she, she's she's at on edge and, and, and we're talking. And as soon as I bring it up, I, I mean, the look on her face, I think she wanted to jump out of the moving car at 45 miles an hour rather than have this conversation with dad. But, you know, moving car was probably the right space to be in, um, you know, with her at the time. Um, but it actually started not with a condemnation for her, but with an apology for me, which is um, I, I think that I've been not seeing you 
the way that I need to see you. I, I think I've not been treating you the way that you need to be treated. And I think that I have been in part the cause for what's going on. I could see my pattern in the conflict now, right? What I was doing and thinking and saying that was leading her to do the things that she was thinking and doing um, and saying. And, and to me, the highlight of the conversation came when after I got done apologizing, she really lit up and said, okay, great. So I can date him. Uh, that's great. Like she's really happy. And then, you know, she had to hear from me. No, no, you, you, you can't. Um, and then the disappointment that sort of comes in again. But we really did. We're able to have a really collaborative discussion about, OK, what do you need? What does it look like to transition from 15 to 16 year old dating? What actually am I OK with and what am I not OK with? How do we open up the lines of communication and really talk about what she needs right now from me? and from her social relationships and also for me, making it clear that part of this was about protection for her, uh, making sure that she was emotionally mature enough um, to do this about some of the concerns that I've seen happen um, with other kids and what have you. So she also understood where I was coming from. You know, it, it, it was an hour conversation. Um, but it actually brought us a lot closer together. And from then on, uh, we had really open lines of communication. We didn't always agree. I would say that went through her entire teenage years that we didn't always agree. Um, but we were able to talk about it and come up with a solution that worked for both of us. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it, it wasn't a lecture. It, it started with listening. And actually, even before that, you were open to her as a as a human, as a person who has hopes and needs and, and fears and dreams. And, and you didn't see her as an object or an obstacle. And this teenager that's trying to break the rules. I, I love that. You saw her with compassion and an understanding. Yeah. And uh, it's easy to see people that way when they're in your way. Right. Uh, and as a parent, often we see our teenagers as in our way, or sometimes we see our, our partners as in in our way. It's easy to not see them at that point and then try to get them out of our way. Uh, and, and, you know, that that's just not that's not dangerous love. It's actually meeting people where they're at uh, and trying to find a way together forward. We'll be right back after this brief message. And we're back. Well, let's dive right in. There, there's something more dangerous that um, you talk about than conflict, and that is contempt. I mean, John Gottman and yeah, others have, have noted how uh, contempt can just really wreak havoc in, in relationships. He studied over 30 years. And contempt, uh, for some, they say, man, it's the single you know, strongest predictor of a future mm -hmm. divorce. No, so your extensive work with uh, peacemaking in the Middle East gives us hope here on the literal home front back here. What advice do you have for partners wanting to restore peace in their hearts and in their home? I think part of it is recognizing, first of all, again, the pattern that I'm playing, right? As long as I'm blind to who I am in the relationship and how I might be um, connecting to this relationship in a negative way, there's really not a lot of hope, right? Because what I'm going to be doing is just waiting for something else to change that I have no control over. And that's frustrating. Uh, it's depressing. I think people lose hope uh, over time. They feel really weak. And it's also a very self-absorbed sort of feeling, right? Because everything is happening to me. Uh, and that's the worst feeling in the world is when everything is happening to me, but 
I don't, I, I'm not a partner in my life anymore, right? My life happens to me. I'm no longer in control um, of my life. And so I think the first step to me is always about, again, this awareness that actually conflict doesn't happen to us. Um, we are part of a pattern uh, in conflict. It may not be our fault. We might be victims, uh, really. We might be real victims as part of a conflict, but it's still not just happening to us. How we choose to respond, how we choose to react, um, what we choose to do, how we choose to forgive, all of those different things are are actively in our control. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing with contempt is when, I, when I'm when i in contempt, you, you know, Dave, you use this, this terminology, I'm really objectifying the other person. They're no longer people to me. I only see their faults, their weaknesses. Arbinger uses this word horribleize that I like, right? I horribleize another person. I only can really see the worst parts of them. And while those parts might be true. Uh, I often find out of fear, those parts get exaggerated. Um, Those parts get put to the forefront. I I become blind to the good parts that I might see in another person. And therefore, I I really can't think about collaborating with someone who's evil. Uh, You know, my book actually starts in chapter one with a question that Miriam asked me. And I, I really wanted to start the book with this way. But what if the person I'm working with is evil? Uh, and and want to start there because even if we don't say it out loud a lot of times, it's a thought that comes through our head all the time, right? What if this person is just evil? What can I do in the face of evil? And, you know, my answer to that and, and King's answer to that, and, and I've seen it um, throughout my life, is love defeats evil. Um, light um, can defeat darkness. Um, and so what do I do, even if it's truly evil? Um, is that I respond with love. And then I'm actually going to find out in most of my relationships that evil actually isn't the right, correct word um, for what's happening here, um, right? And so uh, whether it it may not even have taken that strong of a response uh, because when people are pursuing what it is that they need out of a conflict and when they're doing it out of fear, that's not evil. It's it's self-preservation. It's this sense of if I don't take care of this myself, no one's going to do it for me. And, and that's just such a human thing um, that we're all engaged in. And so, you know, the, and then the, I think the last thing I would say is just quickly is conflict in and of itself doesn't have to be destructive. It doesn't have to be bad. Good relationships include conflict. Great relationships include conflict. It's just all about how we do the conflict, um, right? That really matters. Mm, yeah, I love that. Indeed. Your book, Dangerous Love, calls us to be vulnerable with no guarantee that the other person is going to change or um, be any different on their part. But we've got to do so if we want to experience personal transformation. Do we get that right? Yeah. And that's a hard sell. I I know that's a hard sell for people. Um, Wow. And usually, do do, do people change? I mean, my experience as a marriage therapist is that often that is the case. You know, that we say you can't change somebody else, but when I do change my dance, it can't help but change my partner's dance. It, I, I, absolutely, right? It can't help. It, it, it's certainly not going to hurt. Does it always, when I change my dance, does my partner always change their dance? The answer is no, sadly. Um, right. Because they also are in control of their part of the conflict. Right. They also have some choices to make and they may they may choose poorly. That 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 is true. But if I don't change my dance, the chances of them changing their dance are are slim to none. Right. It happens, but it's really slim to none. It really sort of at that point, I'm praying for a miracle right now. But if I change my dance, 
I dramatically increase the chances that someone else may respond to that change in dance by changing something in their conflict pattern uh, as well. And so we have this choice. We can stay, we can stick with it, uh, and the chances of anything changing are, are really small, or I can change without any guarantee that the other person is going to change. And actually, I think there's a beauty in that, Liz, because um, when I change, not because I'm trying to manipulate the other person to change, not because I'm looking for some sort of quid pro quo in return, but I change just because I think it's the right thing to do, right? To be helpful, to see my partner as a person, uh, to try to show them love and respect uh, to their needs and wants and desires. When I do that out of a sense of I'm doing this out of respect, I'm doing this out of care or concern or love for you. That genuine, I call this, uh, you know, turn first or the most dangerous move in the book. But when I do that, the response that you're going to get back from people is often really powerful. If I change my dance as a manipulation, if it's a change just to try to get some sort of change in the other person, if it's not something that's sincere, uh, then the reaction often is not going to be um, what we what we hope for. And and, and I know a lot of times when I. I work with people, I do this visualization where I, I have two couples or I have two people and they stand back to back and, and then I have them elbow each other, right? So they're elbowing each other and they're standing back to back and I ask them, okay, what does this represent? And, and typically people get the first part right, right away. This is conflict, right? How do you know? What, what do you notice about the conflict? Well, we don't see each other. We're standing back to back. We can't see each other, but we certainly can feel each other, right? Um, we're elbowing each other. And, and then I'll invite one of the parties to turn first. And I say, I just want you to try to turn and change this pattern in the conflict. I want you to move wherever you think you need to move um, in the room. And what most of them do, I'd say 90, 95% of the time, is they try to get in front of the person. So they're back to back and they try to get face to face. Um, and then I, t then I show them what happens. I get back to back with them. They try to get in front and I just keep turning around. Uh, and they get frustrated and sometimes they grab me. I'll just close my eyes, um, right? And they get frustrated and, and they ask, well, why didn't it work? And I said, okay, look, that's actually about you trying to get in front of them and getting them to see you. You still think the solution to the problem is them changing. And if they could just see you and your needs the way that you see them, they would, they would understand, Liz, that you were right and they were wrong and, and that they're going to change. And so after we do that, we go back to back, elbow again, and I ask people to turn and almost everybody gets this right. They just turn and stare at my back. Right. And I'm elbowing, but I have nothing to elbow anymore. And if you've ever had that weird feeling of someone looking at you from behind, there's that sixth sense that human beings have of wanting to kind of turn it. It feels awkward and weird. Um, it's an invitation to turn. Uh, and so instead of thinking about turning because I want them to see me or I want to manipulate them in some way, I turn to see them because it's the right the right thing to do. And and I actually have experienced in my own personal life and I, I, I've seen it with others so much success when we do that. But when I turn as just a tool, as a trick or as a manipulation, that doesn't really work. And people have a way of sensing that out. Man, yeah, I love that. I love that example. It brings... I mean, ultimately, it's this you're saying that when we have this interchange, this real interchange, we see them differently. But then we also give the other person, our partner, a different person to respond to. If we have truly, truly changed, um, then we don't go in that same pattern anymore, right? 
And, and, and that's really why I respect the work that you do, because a lot of that's one on one work, right? A lot of that's individual work, like people want to come to the group thing and they want to solve the group thing together. Um, but a lot of that is the individual work that it takes to really get there. And I, and I call this pre-mediation, um, uh, you know, as well. I try to work with parties to see, can you do the work um, that's actually going to help this go right before we ever step in the room together? And when people do that, we usually have a lot of success when we get in the room together. And when people refuse to do that, it's a it's a long slog. It's really, really hard to get there because both people in the room are really hoping that they say something or do something that convinces the other side that they were right uh, and, and you were wrong and uh, you're going to change. Yeah. Oh, man, I, this reminds me of a um, – I took a class I was mentioned before about um, – from Terry Olson when I was a student at BYU. And he said, um, if we ask this question, if we say, if I were to get, if this question, ask ourselves this question. And he said, if I were to give my whole heart to this person or to this child or to my partner, what would it occur to me to do? And then he said, just, just be, be still. And then heed that inner, that inner call, right. To, to connect and, and to answer that. Uh, and I'll never forget that. If I were to give my whole heart to this person, what would occur to me to do? Um, Chad, you, you talk about different styles of conflict and there are these, these five, uh, Liz, I think you took it. I took it. I'm a conflict. Uh, I'm a conflict avoider, Chad. Do you want to talk, tell us a little bit about the, the styles of conflict and, and where people can go to kind of assess that and then kind of, so what after that, what people can do? Yeah. And Dave, I want to just have a point there on that Terry Warner um, quote that you gave about giving giving your whole heart, because um, it, it sounds so beautiful. Like I can even like sort of see the emotion in your face as you're remembering it. Why don't people do it then? And the answer is they're afraid. Right. What will happen to me? If I do this thing, right, if I give you my whole heart, it's exposed, it's vulnerable, you may stab it, you may spit on it, you may crush it, right? And that fear keeps us away from giving our whole heart. But we almost never talk about what happens when I don't give my whole heart to another person, especially in a marriage or with a child, right? What what are the downsides? The, the upside is it's protected, right? The upside of not giving my whole heart is now it's safe, right? It's behind a wall. Um, and if they do hurt it, at least I didn't give my whole heart. There's some of my heart that's there that's that's intact. But if we don't give our whole hearts, what does it say about the trust and respect and our ability to really, truly connect um, with this person that is supposed to be the person that I'm most connected with in their life. And, and I understand why people don't do it, because they've been hurt before, um, because they've had trauma in the relationship. Maybe growing up, they've had trauma um, and they've they've seen this in their own families or whatever. And so that's why it's dangerous. Right. When I say dangerous love is we're actually what Terry Warner was asking you to do. My guess is for many, many people in the room felt like a very dangerous thing to do, to give my whole heart, to trust someone else with it. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's why we get we get stuck. Um, but the upside of what Terry's saying is if I could do it, if I could muster the courage to do it, even if they don't see it, even if they don't respect it as much as I hope they would, it's transformative to me and trans changing me 
will change the dynamic in the relationship 100%. And it might take weeks. It might take months. It might even take years. But it's very, very hard for someone to continue to respond to me as an object when I'm giving them my whole heart. Uh, it wears that down, that that resistance that, that we have. And, and I think that gets back to the conflict styles thing again, right? Because there's only one conflict style that gives your whole heart. And that's collaboration. If I'm avoiding, I'm actually running away, right? I, I'm actually so scared of conflict and what it says about our relationship that I can't even talk about it, right? Um, it's just there. It's going to sit there. It's going to fester, but I can't even talk about it. If I'm an accommodator and I just give in every time that there's conflict, what I'm really saying is that my needs are dangerous to the relationship, and if I ever advocate for my needs, it's going to mess up this relationship, but maybe they'll love me. Maybe someday if I just keep giving and giving and giving, they'll love me back uh, in a way that um, I'll get my needs met. But most accommodators can tell you that's not how it works up, right? I actually just set a pattern of accommodation and it just keeps happening over and over and over again. If I'm a competitor, what I'm saying is your needs don't really matter. If my needs matter, I know they matter, and I'm going to pursue them aggressively. Uh, and also, if you were as smart as me, you would know that I was right and you're wrong anyway. And so I'm actually looking out for all of us in the relationship. That's how competitors often say, because I just know better than you, um, right? Uh, but again, that's not giving my whole heart. Uh, that's actually protecting it. And compromises, I kind of like think it's like cutting my heart in half, right? I'm saying, I'll give you half of my heart and you give me half of my heart, but I'm withholding this other half out of fairness, right? And I think that that often is the, the, the main idea, right? Is that that what I'm going for in a relationship is fairness um, as, a, as opposed to true connectedness, um, right? Fairness and connectedness are not the same, the same thing. And so collaboration says, look, I'm going to give you my whole heart. And in return, I'm going to ask you to bring your whole heart as well. Tell me your deepest, darkest desires and fears and concerns and what have you. I'll tell you mine. And together we'll commit to each other that we're going to try to find a way forward that meet all of our needs and overcome our fears uh, together. That may take longer. It may be harder. Uh, it's going to talk. It's going to take great communication patterns and other things. But that's the commitment that I have uh, um, to you. Man. Chad, do you have three more hours? Because we, I just feel like, man, this is good stuff, my friend. This is going to feel like I'm in a, in a session here. I, I'm benefiting so much. I, I know our listeners are as well. Um, but all, all good things have to come to an end. Um, we like to ask our, our guests this question. Um, what do you believe, Chad, is the key element to a stronger marriage connection? Yeah, Dave, I think you said it, right? I give my whole heart um, to a person that I'm vulnerable um, that I understand that we're not always going to, we're not the same person. And, and I, I love this word harmony because, you know, harmony, it, harmonies in music are separate voices. They're not the same voice. That's what actually makes them sound beautiful is this blending of voices um, together. And in a, in a great marriage relationship is a harmony. I still have my voice. My partner has her voice. Um, but we blend those voices together. We work on making beautiful music together that actually my, my voice alone couldn't actually make on its own, right? Um, I can't harmonize with myself, um, right? I need another person um, to harmonize. And, and to me, that that's what makes a great marriage is recognizing I need this person uh, 
to be able to make this beautiful music together. But it really does require me giving giving my whole heart, not holding something back and not running away uh, from those parts of our marriage where we are different, where we do really have challenges and obstacles uh, to overcome, but embracing them wholeheartedly and trusting that we can get through this together. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Beautiful. Where can listeners go, dear Chad, for more information on you, on this assessment, your book, Dangerous Love, as well as your new sports-related podcast? Yeah, you can go to DangerousLoveBook.com and uh, you can order the book there. I also read the audio book, which is fun. Uh, there's a um, conflict styles assessment uh, there. And uh, you can also, there's a podcast that um, we ran for about a year and with a number of different topics on dangerous love and just brought in a number of experts to think about everything from marriage to um, community conflict, to sociopolitical conflict, to racial conflict and what have you. Um, and so you can check out the podcast there as well as we just try to break down all the different types uh, of conflict that might be there. That's great. Perfect. Yeah, we'll put that in our show notes. Thanks, Chad. Hey, as we wrap up, um, we do like to ask all of our, our guests again another question. Our final one, Chad, for you is uh, your takeaway. Man, we've had a great, uh, rich discussion. If you could have one message for our listeners today, what do you hope they'll remember? A conflict isn't impossible. Um, whatever situation you feel stuck in right now, as, as stuck as you feel, it's, it's not impossible. There's something you can do something you can do to change that pattern. And, and while the person you're in relationship with may not change, it will certainly change your world uh, for the better. And at the end of the day, um, that is the only thing that we have control over. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's yeah, self. Liz, point. what about you? What do you take away from today? I, you know what? I love this idea of harmony that um, I can't harmonize with myself. That is really beautiful. We do. We desperately need each other, don't we? I always look at marriage as the um, the ultimate self improvement project, if you will, <laughs> or self improvement course, because um, we do. We need each other in growing and developing and embracing conflict. Yeah. What about you, Dave? What's yeah, your man, so much. Uh, I'm just soak, soaking it all in. That's why I wish we could uh, go forever with this one, Chad. I, I appreciate our discussion so much. Of what you've said has really um, hit me and touched me today. So. I think um, coming back to something you said earlier, you know, the first step is this this awareness. If couple listen, people, an individual, right, one person listening in this partnership, and they're like, "Man, you know, how do I start? This is difficult. We've had this this little pattern that we've been in for years. Just this awareness, this awareness, this understanding, being able to see them differently from their perspective, even if you disagree with their perspective, slowing down and being able to see it from their perspective creates this vulnerability, this compassion, this new." awareness um which then invites that change it, but it's that authentic change we don't change expecting or they they should change now but it, we we're doing it for us and we were able to see so much more more clearly so chad once again oh man my friend this has been a, a rich discussion we so uh, appreciate your time um your insights today and we thank all of our listeners thanks for tuning in this week and we'll see you next time and remember, it's the little things that create a stronger marriage connection. Take care now. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, do us a favor and take a few minutes to subscribe to our podcast and the Utah Marriage Commission YouTube channel, where you can watch this and every episode of the show. When you hit the like button and leave a comment, your feedback helps us improve the show. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. 
You can also follow and connect with us on Instagram at Stronger Marriage Life and on Facebook at Stronger Marriage. Be sure to share with us what topics you want us to explore and what you loved about today's episode. If you want even more resources to improve your relationship connection, visit our website at StrongerMarriage.org where you'll find free workshops, webinars, relationship surveys, and more. Each episode of Stronger Marriage Connection is hosted and sponsored by the Utah Marriage Commission at Utah State University. And finally, a big thanks to our producers Rex Polanis and Alexis Alcott and the team at Utah State University. And you, our audience, you make this show possible.